Thank you, Brother Kevin. And thank you for those of us that are joining us. We had initially planned to start the new book as we moved to the new location. As you uh, can see, we are not there yet, but we're pressing forward with starting the, the new book as we had intended. So which book is that? As um, Pastor Kevin Bruce mentioned, it's the book of Malachi. So in order for us not to uh, scramble, the easiest way I can think of is go to the book of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament, and go backwards one, and you're right there. Right? Um, so if you are able to stand, let us stand for the reading of God's word, and we'll get to our study. Book of Malachi, chapter 1, we're going to read the first five verses. And the inerrant word of God reads, The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, They may build up, but I will tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us to begin a study in the book of Malachi, Lord. May we be humbled, may we be called to repentance, maybe we may we be called to submit to the Lordship of Jesus as we study, as we learn, as we are edified. And may we be reminded, Lord, and we be convicted by your Holy Spirit that this is a call for us to turn to you because you love us. Not to condemn us because you love us and are calling us to repent daily into your Lordship. Speak to us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So before us today, we have the introduction to the book of Malachi. And what we're going to see today is a brief overview of the style, the context in which the book of Malachi takes place. The passage that we're going to focus on speaks about the love that God has for his people. And we're going to see an attitude that the people of God have towards God. As I was preparing for this, I kind of looked around for an example of an attitude that somebody should have towards someone that's providing for them. I think I came across a good example here. A guy by the name of Andrew Carnegie, who lived from 1835 to 1919, was an entrepreneur and businessman in the steel industry. He gained great wealth, one of the richest men in American history. Now when he died, having such great inheritance, he left $1 million to his family, his immediate and extended family. What do you think the reaction of his family was? They were indignant. They were angry. They were ungrateful. Why? 
because not only had he left one million dollars to them, I mean, this is back right nineteen ninety. That's a that's like a lot of money right now in in current money. If we were to transpose what that means now, the reason they were very upset is because they found that he left three hundred and sixty-five million to charities and to other causes. So instead of having an attitude of gratitude, the attitude was of indignation, of envy, of covetousness. Because although what they got was very nice and very good, when they looked around, as the heart of man is inclined to think, wait a minute, I don't have enough. Somebody else has more. So as we think about that example, we will focus on today's study, as I've titled it, Being Blind to God's Love. Because we realize that when we are blinded to the goodness, to the love, to the grace that God has shown us, it's an indication that we have not matured in our faith. Ingratitude is a sign that we are struggling to mature spiritually. Typically, we can thank God for the blessings that He gives us. Or we can be indifferent towards God and in the things that He gives us. Indifference, or we thank Him for the blessings that He gives us. But true maturity, hopefully where we want to look towards so that we can know and have an indication that we are maturing, is when we thank God for the simple fact and great truth that He is God. When we can recognize that He is Lord and that we depend on Him for our daily sustenance. That's when we are moving towards spiritual maturity rather than thanking God only for what He does or for the times that He, that in our opinion, He is good to us. So gratitude versus ingratitude. That's going to be what we're going to see today in the introduction passage to the book of Malachi. Now, a little bit of background so that we get a, a backdrop of where this book and God speaking to his people is coming from. The author of the book of Malachi is believed to have been a guy by the name of Malachi. There are some that say that that's actually not a proper name and it's only a way of saying that this person is God's messenger or the Lord's messenger and thus it's considered to be an anonymous book written by an anonymous person that can be the case but nevertheless what we can know is that God is using his messenger whether it's Malachi proper name or whether it's someone who is anonymous to deliver a message to his people at the conclusion of the Old Testament. This is the last book of the Old Testament. Just like in the New Testament, as Christians, we have the book of Revelation. Likewise, and similarly, the Jewish people in their scriptures have the book of Malachi as their last book. So, the messenger of the Lord, or my messenger. There's no other place in scripture that Malachi is mentioned. This is the only spot. And then the date of the book of Malachi seems to be right around late 5th century, likely during Nehemiah's return to Persia, which took place around 430 
BC. We know from the content of the book that the Jewish people are now sacrificing according to their Old Testament laws in the New Temple, which is the Second Temple. So we know that the Second Temple was standing, which had been completed according to Ezra chapter 6, about 86, 85 or 86 years prior to this. Okay? So Malachi, the messenger of the Lord, is writing this book during the Second Temple period. And the general theme, just as in the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the New Testament, in this last book of the Old Testament, God is also exhorting, warning, and calling his people to repentance, similar to how Jesus does in the book of Revelation, addressing the seven churches, remember? So God is exhorting his people and putting several reminders to his people. The key here is going to be that while God addresses his people through Malachi, he's going to be calling them out. He's going to be warning them. He's going to be exhorting them. He's going to be rebuking them in some sense because of their unfaithfulness and their disobedience. And that falls into several categories, specifically speaking. So generally speaking, in the book, he's going to address the ungratefulness that they have. He's going to address the corrupt priesthood meaning Israel's spiritual leaders that were called to lead the people. They have become corrupt. He's going to address the complacency of the people in worship, just going through the motions. Their heart is really not in it. They're just checking the boxes. He's going to address the unfaithfulness in their marriages, speaking about their relationship between a husband and a wife, how that's gone astray, and it's an indication of their spiritual life. He's going to address injustice amongst themselves. And he's also going to address the neglect of people not giving back to God from what God has given them in the form of tithes and offerings. So that's the book in a nutshell. And the purpose of God bringing these things to them in this book, it is not to condemn them, but it's rather to show them that he loves them and to call them to repentance. This reminds us of John chapter 3 where it says that God has not sent his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him may be saved. Right? There is going to be a time when God is going to come back as a judge. By his grace and his mercy, we're not there yet. So not to condemn them, but to call them, to edify them and have them submit to him. The style of the book follows a pattern of disputations similar to how, to how you would read a court case where there's a statement made by one party and then the second party brings the rebuttal or the response to the accusation. And these disputations are patterned six times. God will say something and then the people will come back and respond to God. And it goes six times. Now, the disputation that we're going to see today, which is the first one, involves the following. First, God is speaking to his people. And to that, we should ask, is God speaking to us today? Then we're going to see that God reminds his people that he loves them. To we should ask, does God love me? Does God love us? Or are we blinded? 
by our circumstance. Then we're going to see that God reminds his people that he is in control. He is sovereign. He's sitting on the throne. So we should, we should ask, do we recognize God's sovereignty? And then finally, we'll see that God expects something in return when he has revealed these things. He expects people to repent, to worship him, and to proclaim his righteousness, his goodness. That requires submission to God. So then that will prompt the question in us, have we submitted to the Lordship of Jesus? So we will see that the people were blind to these things. They were not seeing this accurately. They need to be awakened. They need to be reminded and made be aware that God's covenant love towards them was active, was drawing them to him. But they could not see it. They were blind to it. So let's dig right in. First disputation, verse 1, book of Malachi says, the oracle of the Lord, the, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So here the, the word oracle means a pronouncement, a prophecy, discourse being given. Some translations will read a load or a burden, which is being delivered to the people. He's going to call them out. It's going to be a heavy message. And then as we briefly stated, Malachi is the messenger, the messenger of the Lord. Of first importance here, we can just take for granted that God is speaking to his people and then go on to see what he's saying. But let's remember first, the aspect of Israel being the chosen people of God, through whom God decreed that he would bring in Messiah, that is Jesus, and save the world from sin. So let us ask, why did God choose Israel? Which are the descendants of Jacob, through Isaac, through Abraham. Why did God choose Abraham? Who was Abraham before God called him? He's not a good person, he's a pagan. So God chose his people, the people of Israel, the patriarchs. What good or what sort of greatness was in them that God chose them? The answer is nothing. There was nothing special about them. As a matter of fact, we learned that God chose them being small and significant, weak, in order to show his glory. In order to show that he is great and that he is good. He did not choose a strong and strong, fervent nation. He chose the least of them. And this reminds us that God does not need anyone. God does not need to reach out to anyone. He could be vindicating in his holy justice. If he didn't call anyone to himself and he let everyone perish, he would be vindicated in his righteousness and his goodness. And when God is calling disobedient people to heed to what he has to say, the attitude of God is not saying, look, I sent you multiple prophets here where again. I'm sick and tired of you. I know you're not going to listen to me. And I'm just going to let you go. That's not God's attitude. God's attitude is one of saying, remember that I love you and I have something to tell you. Turn to me. Repent. So here he is, God, sending another messenger to them. Because if we remember the Old Testament, by and large, what happened to the prophets of God? Were they accepted by the people? No. Yeah. They were rejected, killed. Right? 
God here is yet again showing his great mercy, sending them another prophet. So we then learn that we should not take the fact that God speaks for granted. Because God could very well not speak and still be vindicated in his goodness and his righteousness and his holiness. And we would be lost forever if he didn't speak to us. But yet, God takes the initiative. God pursues his people. And before he rebukes them, before he disciplines, before he corrects, he first tells them that he loves them. That's the attitude of a loving father. For those of us that are fathers or parents, it should be a reminder when we correct, when we rebuke, when we instruct our children. I have to plead guilty that many times I do it out of anger and not out of love. By God's grace, there are many times that I, the first thing I do say to my children is, you know that I love you. We need to deal with what you have done. So the reassurance of a loving father, the first thing he says, I'm speaking to you and I love you. That should be a reminder for us that God is merciful and shows his grace. So then how does God speak to us now? Speaking to them through the prophets. Hebrews 1 chapter 1 tells us, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. So just like God has spoken in the scriptures, the ultimate revelation of God speaking to us should not be taken for granted and the way that he has spoken to us is through Jesus. So here in Malachi, as God is beginning to address them, do they realize that they are highly favored? Do they realize that God has not left them alone? And that God is speaking to them and calling them to himself? Do you think they realize that? No, they don't. Right? The example of ingratitude. They don't, which leads to the next point. God reminds Israel of his love for them, but they are blind to it. So let's take a look at the first part of verse 2. It says, this is the declaration of, of God's love to them in the first disputation before they have their grievance against God. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? There it is. Very precise. And when God says to his people, I have loved you, the tense that is used here, meaning, is meaning that he has loved them, and that he's loving them, and that he will love them, is the covenant love of God. It is described as having a great affection or care for in the form of absolute loyalty. So this is because of God's character, not because they deserved it or because they had done anything good to deserve it, but because it's God's character. Now the background here is that the latest trial, the latest major trial of the people of Israel is that they had been taken captive by Babylon, in which Solomon's temple had been destroyed and they were under the yoke of King Nebuchadnezzar. 
Now, to their credit, that is very vivid in their mind. Being captive, suffering. And by the way, that was because of their own disobedience that that judgment came upon them. But let us look briefly at instances in which God, which God is going to remind them where they came from, what he has done for them. And the people of Israel, by and large, are very familiar with their history. Right? Genealogies are very important to them. So let's do just a quick review of some of the things that God had done for them. We see in Exodus 14 at the Red Sea, where it seemed that it was all over. Pharaoh's army was coming after the people of Israel. And they, they would have been destroyed if Pharaoh's army had caught up to them. But yet, God, through Moses, parts the Red Sea. And the people of Israel are able to escape. Pharaoh's army comes and they get swallowed up by the water. God delivered them. It's a major victory. What about providing for Israel for their daily sustenance? In Exodus 16, we see that Israel, when they were wandering in the desert for 40 years, God miraculously provided for them each and every day for 40 years. Now, were they grateful? Were they conscientious of what God had been doing for them? They griped about it. They complained. And then the book of Judges, chapter 6 through 8, when God used Gideon and his significantly small army to deliver Israel from the Midianites, who were pretty much like a superpower compared to the army that Gideon had. Yet God delivered them. And then Numbers 21, when God gives Israel give Israel victory over the Canaanites. Joshua chapter 6, the walls of Jericho, when God once again delivered Israel, miraculously destroying the walls. 1 Samuel 13 and 14, God protects Israel when he saves them from the Philistines. On and on and on and on. So God is going to speak to them about their past, where he has brought them from, according to their genealogy. So then we should think, what would we think? What would we know about someone if everyone around us is trying to kill us and our family and someone keeps saving us over and over? Should we not be grateful? Yes. So. Nevertheless, the people of Israel were blinded to being grateful. They were blinded to the fact that God loved them. Because what do they respond to God when God says, I have loved you? They ask a question, but it's really not a question. They're actually accusing God of not loving them. They are focused only in the here and the now. What God has done for them has been clouded by their circumstance. And that should remind us, what about us today? Are we raising our fists to God and saying... You haven't loved me. You have done nothing for me. For starters, we should remember that we are all under God's common grace. The scripture says that rain falls on the just and the unjust. Speaking of God's provision, speaking of God's goodness in the simple facts of life that we can live, we can breathe, we can enjoy a sunset, we can enjoy a meal. We can enjoy family. We can enjoy company. We can enjoy God's world. 
as a whole. That's God's common grace. Additionally, how many times have we not found ourselves in a difficult trial situation? Something that we are burdened with. And somehow, lo and behold, God intervenes. God delivers you from that trial. I know in my life this happened more than once. And when He intervenes and He helps us and He delivers us from our trials, it's not because we deserve it, but it's because He has shown His grace to us. Do we not give credit to God for that? Well, maybe we do. But nevertheless, we forget. Right? When we find ourselves in the next trial, and many times as a consequence of our own disobedience, there we are again, like, oh, God never helps me. Right? So then we become blinded by our disobedience and by our circumstance. And it clouds our judgment of being able to see that God is good and that He has loved us. That's generally speaking. More specifically, the major way in which God has, has shown that He loves us is by making Himself known to us. By revealing Himself, not only through general revelation, or natural revelation in His creation, but also by special revelation, by the Scriptures. He has made known Himself to us. Ultimately, in the, in the person of Jesus, God in flesh. So He has loved us by coming from all eternity, entering His creation, and saving us from our sin. That's how God has loved us. Today. So he makes this declaration that he loves them. The people say, no, you don't. And then God is going to show them that he has. The second part of verse 2 into verse 3, it reads, Is, Esau, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. So a quick recap about Esau and Jacob. There were twin brothers. They were born to Isaac, who was born to Abraham. Right? Esau was the oldest of the twins. His descendants ended up being the Edomites, Edomites, who were later in constant fighting and griping and conflict with Israel. Jacob is where the twelve tribes of Israel came from. Now, in Jewish tradition, the oldest, even if they're twins, right? Whoever is the oldest, even if by seconds or minutes, is the one who has the rights of the firstborn. However, God had decreed that the birthright would be given to Jacob, not Esau. And we should ask, who deserved God's favor out of the two to have the birthright? Or to be chosen rather than rejected? Who was the one deserving of that? The answer is neither. Twelve of them were not good people. But God nevertheless chose Jacob. And Israel knows exactly, right, the people of Israel, they know exactly the implication of this genealogy. And they're thinking, well, God may be saying he loves us because he had, he had made a promise to Abraham, so he's indebted to us in some way. However, here God to remind them that there was no difference between Jacob and Esau when they were still in the womb because he chose one and not the other. 
So he had favored them. He had chosen them. But yet they could not see that they were loved. Now Paul gives a commentary about this in Romans chapter 9 in which he talks about the purpose of God's election. So that the purpose of God's election would stand. Although this is not a sermon focusing on God's election, it will suffice to say that we here can see clearly that if anyone is going to turn to God, that if anyone is going to be saved by God, it will have to be because God intervenes and takes the initiative and not because somebody did something to deserve it. Now somebody can say, well, that's not fair. And I would say, that's right, it's not fair. Because fairness would be that both would perish, that both would be rejected. Because we are tainted with the fall, with original sin. So suffice to say, because God intervened and because he's merciful, he chose Jacob and rejects Esau. And then God showing this to Israel as proof that he loves them, that he chose them, and they look at their history, there is no way for Israel to say, well, you haven't shown me that you love me. It's sort of a, what we refer to today as a mic drop, right? God tells them, look where you've come from. And it implies all the ways in which God has favored them. And if they think about that, there's really no response back to God. God showing his faithfulness to them. So God declares that he loves them and then he shows them that he has loved them. And then next we see that God is in control. God is sovereign. As we would like to think today is to be reminded, to be convicted that Jesus is on the throne regardless of circumstance. So the second half of verse 3 and verse 4 says, I have laid waste his hail country and left his heritage to jackals in the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So in the eyes of Israel, they saw as others always having it better than them. Right? Like the example here at the beginning where Somebody had a pretty nice inheritance, but they look around and they say, actually, even though it's a lot, I'm still not happy because somebody else has more. This was a constant theme with Israel, thinking that others were more highly favored than them. And is it not true that often as we look around, we can think, why is it that I'm trying to do everything right? And it seems that the more I try to follow God and, and abide by his word, that things go worse. Why? The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. So this is why God is addressing them as something that Edom would say, that they were going to rebuild themselves. And at one point, the Edomites had victory in overthrowing Jerusalem, right? Israel, according to Psalm 137, verse 7. So for sure, this is something that is vivid in their mind and would clearly have remembered 
And what they're doing is that they're often counting their trials and not their blessings, just like we, right? We often count our trials and our blessings. However, God is reminding them that the sons of disobedience, those that are God's enemies, although it may look as if they have made it in life, they may look as if everything is going right for them, that is only temporary. In the long run, judgment will fall upon them and they will be destroyed. God ultimately used the Chaldeans to ravage the land of Edom and then it was laid in ruins. And here is when they say, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. That's the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. That's the pride of men at work. Godless people will only act according to their worldview. In this case, the Edomites are saying, we are great, we are strong. Yeah, we took a hit, but we're going to rebuild ourselves. We got it. And God is saying, yeah, they could do that, but I'm going to knock it down. Sometimes, we can see that when a group of people or even a nation has risen so much in their pride, God will give them over to a reprobate mind. Romans chapter 1. And the attitude of such people would be, or such group of people or a nation is, we are self-made, we depend on no one, we are powerful, we will rebuild. We don't need God. And in the long run, God says, yeah, go ahead and rebuild. I'll knock it down. Is any of this applicable to our people, to our nation today? <laughs> we don't need God. Let us do what we want. People given over to a reprobate mind. Then they said, God says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country. This reminds us of what Psalm says. Psalms 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Right? So unless we commend ourselves to the providence, to the goodness, to the protection of God, aside from whatever we do, if we are not submitted to God, we will be doing those things in vain. Our protection, our security will be in vain if God is ultimately not watching over us. So God is sovereign. He is in control. And those that are opposed to God, as much as it could seem that they're prospering, as much as they could think that they're rebuilding or building their little kingdom, God says, it's in vain, I will tear it down. Because they are God's enemies. So then we see that God expects something in this prophecy. It takes us to verse 5. It says, Your own eyes shall see, shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now this is a prophecy. This is what the people of God are going to say. And this prophecy, I would say, is partially fulfilled. Because it is true that in the Old Testament... 
There are many occasions in which the people of God did praise God and thank Him for His deliverance, and they did praise the name of the Lord. They were grateful. But I tell you that this prophecy of the people of God realizing how good God is and how He has shown and extended His mercy beyond the physical Israel, this prophecy saying, Great is the Lord, is and ultimately will be fulfilled in the church, the people of God. The true fulfillment of God's people when they believe and proclaim this is the fulfillment of that prophecy that God that God will have his people say great is the Lord so then what can we conclude we can see that the people of Israel they are blinded they have a cloudy image of what God has done for them. They cannot see that God has been faithful. They cannot see that they are loved because they are depending on their circumstance dictating what they think. So then we have to realize are we in a similar spot today even this morning where we are blinded we cannot see that the love of God has come upon us or that God has shown us favor. I understand we live in the real world. Sometimes we are going through difficult trials. We are hurting either because of our own choices or perhaps we were taken advantage of. Maybe someone hurt us. Maybe we're suffering physically, mentally, emotionally, struggling with whatever trial is before us today. God knows that. He understands that. He's not caught by surprise, even if we have an attitude of ingratitude towards Him. But today, God reminds you and tells you, I have loved you. I have loved you. An indicator that we are beginning to understand that God has loved us is that we have an attitude of gratitude. We recognize that God indeed has loved us. And our gratitude rejects an attitude of entitlement, of saying, well, I'm here, I showed up, like I, I deserve something. That attitude starts to fade. And the new attitude becomes, wow, I don't deserve anything. God has shown me favor. God is good to me. And it shows us that as we begin to be changed in our mind and our heart by the work of the Holy Spirit, we start moving into spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity in acknowledging God's goodness, God's love for us. And thanking God because He is God and because He's on the throne, rather than thanking God only for those things that He gives us. Secondly, we can see that God has shown His love for us in the person of Christ. Because after all, we are no better than Jacob or Esau. And because God requires perfection in order to be right with him. Jesus, God in the flesh, had to come down to this earth, be born of a virgin, live a perfect life that we cannot live. Die a brutal death that we should have done. We should have died. 
he was buried, but he rose again on the third day. And is now sitting in the throne of heaven. So God has shown us that he loves us through Jesus. As we learn, going back to the book of John, chapter 3, that he loves us so much that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And then again, he calls us in love. He sent his son not to condemn us, but that through him we may be saved. That is ultimately how God has shown us that he loves us by providing Jesus. And then God, let's remember that God requires a response. Indifference is a response. So in other words, if you do nothing, you're rejecting what God is telling you. And what is that? What is that expectation? That he expects us to turn to him, to acknowledge that he has loved us, to worship him, to repent. And then that whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, my friends, you need to know it is not a pass or an excuse in order to not submit to the Lordship of Christ. There's no such thing as a free pass. We should recognize the majestic love of God, His favor toward us in providing Jesus. And if we have not experienced that repentance, that submission to the Lord Jesus, then we are being called to do that, even today. Repent of sin, turn to Christ, trust in His perfect life, in His death and resurrection, so that His righteousness can come upon us and God can see us as acceptable. Then we become part of God's family and we can say along with us, as the prophecy of Malachi says, that the people of God will proclaim, Great is the Lord. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And then let us remember, lastly, that we are being drawn to worship something, to pursue something. And if that main pursuit in our life is not Jesus, then we are following an idol. That could be a career. That could be any sort of religious or super uh, superstitious beliefs that are not in Scripture. If we are not pursuing Christ, we are creating an idol and worshiping an idol. And I will close with a Scripture that reminds us of the power that Jesus has to turn our minds and our hearts to Him so that we can worship Him. It's in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. I'll read it to you. It says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So as we realize that God does love us, as we realize that he has shown his love in Jesus, when he, we look back at our lives and realize that God has been faithful to us, our main pursuit then becomes to love Jesus because he has changed us 
And in turn, we put away all our idols in order to follow him and to worship him and to say, great is the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Malachi, in which we have started to see that you call people to repentance, that you call people to acknowledge that you have loved them. And you have called us to know that you have loved us in Christ. Lord, I ask that you may provide strength, that you may provide your Holy Spirit to enable us to believe these truths, and that we may repent, Lord, to trust in you even for salvation or for perseverance in the faith. We pray for all the families that are represented here. We pray for those that perhaps are watching, that you may draw us to you so that you may be glorified and that we may be edified and joyful in worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.